This program was produced with the support of StoryHive, creativity connected by TELUS. For more information, please visit storyhive.com. Uh, actually, when uh, my wife and I were first getting married, uh, people asked, you know, oh, what does your you know, husband-to-be, you know, what does he do? And she would say, oh, well, he's, he's a chaplain. And they go, um, sister, I thought, I thought he was Muslim. <laughs> <laughs> chaplain is kind of a weird word. It's not one we often find ourselves using every day. I know for me, it reminds me of like Charlie Chaplin or some kind of vague notion of a priestly figure, which is actually not too far off from the word's meaning. The old French word chapelain essentially meant a clergyman who conducts private services, but its medieval origins are a little bit stranger. Technically speaking, the, the, the term chaplain uh, really goes back to um, Christian uh, European um, armies where they would actually bring a, uh, it's part of the Catholic practice that they would bring sacred relics. Nowadays, we, we would refer to them as, as you know, uh, things, objects with baraka uh, in them, right? And so in the Catholic tradition, they also believe in, in, in this baraka, and uh, although they don't term it as such. And uh, they would actually bring with their army an, an item that's related to a saint, and to be able to do that, you need to have someone who would look after this item from the church. That's Chaplain Ibrahim Long. He's one of Canada's only accredited Muslim chaplains. And right now he's telling me about this Indiana Jones-esque history of the word. See, the word chapelain originally comes from the medieval land word capella, which means little cloak, referring to the cloak of St. Martin of Tours. Legend has it that Marne was a Roman soldier stationed in modern-day France, and that one day, as he was passing the city gates, he came across a poorly dressed beggar. In some moment of sympathy for the man, Marne cut his cloak in half and gave the other to the beggar. Later that night, he allegedly dreamt that Jesus Christ came to him wearing the half cloak. Marne went and got baptized after that, becoming a monk and then a bishop, and allegedly, the half that he kept became a sacred relic, like Ibrahim was talking about. French armies would carry the cloak into battle, and the priest who would take care of the relic would be called Kapalanu. And that person came to be known as the chaplain. And that individual also became uh, in charge of religious services while the uh, people were away from their, from their, they would call parish church, or like their home base, their home church. Over time, uh, this vocation, this position also developed into other areas where basically, you know, chaplaincy is about providing religious services to people outside of religious centers. But basically, you know, a university, a, a hospital, a, um, a prison, these are places where in which people require and need and desire for religious support, but they are not themselves religious centers. So you have people who serve on these uh, in these institutions, but from outside, you know, uh, the institution, so to speak. So it sounds like, you know, being a chaplain is going to where the people are. And even in this um, Catholic history, it's really interesting. It's about like bringing something holy to people, mm -hmm. right? Bringing a sense of sacred where they're at in those spaces. Hi, I'm Hussein, and you're listening to Chicken Soup with the Muslim Roo, a 
the podcast where we try to have soulful conversations about the Muslim community and our neighbors, conversations about important work that's being done within this community while navigating questions of faith, hope, and vulnerability. In this episode, I speak to my friend Ibrahim Long about his time as a hospital chaplain and the lessons he's taken within him from that experience, lessons about life and death, and navigating providing spiritual care while holding true to his Muslim identity. Faith has always been a part of Ibrahim's life. He was raised by a Mormon father and a devoted Catholic mother in California. And while many of us at one point or another in our lives have to confront big questions like, why am I here? Or what happens to me after I die? These questions confronted Ibrahim in high school when he lost a parent to cancer. This event led him to an introspective quest to understand how best to believe in and serve his creator, which culminated in him becoming a Muslim at the age of 23. He writes about this experience in his website, which I'll link in the show notes. While this journey answered the first part of his questions, which was about how to believe in God, the question of how best to serve him became answered later. Um, I'm curious, where do you think this um, desire for service uh, emerges from? Like, what, what compelled you to take that route? It's kind of a hard question to, to answer, because I think over time, I've, if I can give a, my current answer that still, I'm still working through, is um, that there's something within when counseling uh, that's called the wounded healer. You know, it's very, very prominent motif within uh, within spiritual counseling, especially the idea of um, a person who's been through difficulty and made it to the other side feels compelled to help others get through it. And as you've uh, read my uh, conversion story, you know that I've uh, experienced some difficulties in, in my early childhood and and, and uh, as a teenager and. M- my my faith and faith itself was a very strong means of support through all of that. I, I want to help others. Like uh, I, I have a strong sense of empathy, you know, for people who are struggling, especially uh, young persons, young adults. And if I can be of service to them, basically, if I could be for them the person I wanted to have in my life. Oh, then um, um, that's what I that's what I feel compelled to be. Like it's hard to point to one specific aspect. You know, my mother's faith is uh, has always been the primary point of reference for my early uh, for my childhood and young adulthood. And um, you know, and it wasn't about uh, necessarily going to church every. Sunday or anything to that effect, but it was about loving God and saying her prayers and being good to people and ultimately trusting in God when difficulties arise. You know, that, that, that's been my point of, of reference. You know, when it comes down to um, like distinctly religious figures in the sense of like an authoritative figure, like an imam or a priest or uh, rabbi or something to that effect. I, I really didn't have that experience uh, growing up. Yeah, as you might have read in my 
conversion story, you know, there was just the, the priest at my mother's funeral who said, you know, think of one thing about uh, Wanda that you can take into yourself, and that will be her living legacy. And that's when I took, when I, when I knew for certain that I'd be pursuing faith to find her strength. After this experience, Ibrahim became armed with a desire to support others, specifically through counseling. He began to study psychology in his undergrad, but it didn't quite give him the answers he was looking for. So, um, when I when I first converted at that point in time, I was actually studying psychology, and um, I became very disappointed with the. Uh, how little spirituality was, I mean, it was not at all addressed in my undergraduate psychology courses. A lot of my questions that I wanted to explore in psychology were actually really rooted in theology. You know, it was more about an, a philosophical understanding, you know, a theological understanding of what is a human being, what is it that makes us truly happy, and, um, you know, a sense of purpose and, and so forth. And so I looked for different graduate programs, but most of them were really focused on Islamic history. And because of my initial interest that I wanted to study religion to be able to help with counseling, to be able to help in service, I really didn't feel like I gravitated towards any one of these programs. So Ibrahim changes his major to religious studies, which he graduates in, but he was still looking for a way to serve others through his faith. A mixture of serendipity and divine intervention nudged him in the right direction when a friend mentioned he should check out the website of Hartford Seminary, which offered America's first accredited program in Islamic chaplaincy. But when I looked at the program and I started seeing course titles that said like history of Islamic philosophy, history of Islamic theology, uh, uh, addiction and uh, spirituality, Muslim mental health, you know, American Muslims, like all these things that were just so practical, right? That blended mental health concerns, but also the history of our tradition. Like, it's like it spoke to me. And then it had this thing called chaplaincy. And I was like, what is, what is this? You know, because I didn't know what a Muslim chaplain was at that time. But I saw what at least they're supposed to learn. And, and that's what drew me in. The courses that Ibrahim took and their practical applications absorbed his attention. But in those early days, he was still on the fence if this was the path he wanted to take. There was one moment he shared in particular, though, that made him realize Hartford was the place for him. And uh, there was a gentleman that, that came in and, um, and I, again, I'm just gonna be brutally honest. You know, I, I, I prejudged him. I, I you know, I, I saw based upon the way he, he looked that I thought that he'd be a particular way. And and after he gave his presentation before Dr. Manson, he then said, now it's my turn. And he started questioning her, questioning a, a professor in front of her students. And, and he was actually just a guest of the class just giving a presentation. And... And he was being, I, I feel, very rude. But if you were to kind of like take one hand and kind of not look at him and just look at Dr. Madsen, she's like 
she was not getting flustered. Here she is, a professor, getting questioned in front of her class, in her classroom, by a guest who is kind of being a little bit rude in his tone and so forth. And she was responding, uh, like, in a totally different tone. And it was like, it was like if, you, if you're, you've covered up your hand from him and just looking at you, you'd think she's talking with someone over a cup of coffee. And if you cover up her and just look at the gentleman, you think that there's about to be a verbal, like, there's a verbal assault going on here. And, and afterwards, you know, I, I told her after class, I, I sort of waited after class because I just wanted to, I just had to tell her, like, what that meant to me. I said, I, I was so impressed with how you felt or how you interacted with that individual. And I kind of mentioned my prejudgment. And she said to me that, you know, I, I don't prejudge anyone. I allow each person to speak for themselves. And that was like, I want to learn from you. <laughs> Besides coursework, the practical element of a chaplaincy degree is working in the field. This is called clinical pastoral education, or CPE. It's not unlike, say, doing a practicum for social work students. Ibrahim's CPE placement was in a local hospital, and he still remembers his first day. The very first day. So to add some context to this, so when someone's working in a hospital, or at least for myself, I was assigned units. There are particular units of the hospital that I had to go. It was my responsibility to make sure that each one of these patients were at least offered the opportunity to, to meet with a chaplain. And so uh, day one, when we finally get told by our supervisors, okay, go and do what we've been teaching you. You know, I, uh, you know, I, I, I feel like I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm visibly Muslim. Uh, sometimes I'm surprised that people don't, you know, know that I'm Muslim. I often wear a kufi and I have a beard and, you know. Side note, a kufi is a kind of rounded cap that Muslim men wear all over the world. So I was a little bit nervous. I'm like, you know, here I am at a, it's a Catholic hospital, about to knock on the door of a stranger and ask if he wants to hear if he, if he wants to meet with basically someone who I felt was a clearly identifiable Muslim chaplain. First door, and I knock on it, you know, and I say, hello, hello, so-and-so. You know, I mentioned the patient's name. Uh, my name is Ms. Ibrahim. I'm with Spiritual Care. Um, would you like to talk? I might have said something like that. It's been so long, I forget what I used to say. But the, the gentleman laying down in his bed looks over at me, and he goes, are you Muslim? And I go, yeah. And he goes, that's so cool. <laughs> and so we end up talking. And like he himself is, you know, was a practicing Christian. And, uh, but he thought that it was so nice to have someone of, uh, to have a member of the Muslim, Muslim community, you know, uh, to to come just see how he's doing and to 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 meet with him you know to wish him well and we end up ended up having a just a very nice conversation about the importance of interfaith and supporting each other and at, and I really believe that was a gift from god you know because I was so nervous 
And then the very first person I spoke to in this context, like I went there to make him feel, uh, you know, at ease, uh, but he made me feel so, so much at ease. And, uh, you know, and, and to be fair, like, um, all, all that concern that I had about being a Muslim or, or uh, and meeting with people of different faiths, like I actually found that uh, in most most instances, uh, it actually helped the situation. You know, sometimes people wanted specifically a Catholic priest because I can't offer, you know, the, the certain prayers and sacraments of a, of a priest. And so it's just a matter of what I can or cannot do. But uh, I, you know, I can't point to a, a particular uh, time. Well, let me, let me put it this way, that in most cases, I, I felt that actually my, my difference added to um, the appreciation people had for my presence. What was the day that you, in your own eyes, became a chaplain? Uh, you know, uh, it's a really good question. Um, well, there could be several instances. One I think stands out cause it was early on. I was, I was helping a uh, family who had lost a uh, loved one. And one of the family members was themselves a chaplain from another city. And they're asking me all these things. Can you help me with this? Like stuff that's actually not what we do. You know, like connect me with a funeral hospital or a funeral home. And like we, we can provide you information, but we don't actually do that uh, ourselves. Maybe they did things differently there. But the main point is she was yelling at me. She was really upset. And in that moment, while she was yelling at me, for not having all the answers that she was looking for. I, I sort of saw that I think she's actually just more upset that she doesn't know what to do. Here she is, a chaplain in a hospital that's not her own. She just lost a loved one. She's probably used to being in charge on top of things, and now she feels very vulnerable. And I allowed her to yell at me, like, you know, uh, not in a demeaning way. I'm not demeaning myself. I recognize that that's what she needed. She was just letting off steam. It wasn't about me. She had just lost a loved one. And that spiritual care in that moment was allowing myself to not take it personally, basically. That's what she needed to deal with her grief right, right there. You know, she wasn't like assaulting me or anything like that, but she... In a normal situation, like I wouldn't have appreciated being talked to like that. But in that situation, mm -hmm. um, I knew that it was not coming from necessarily her view of me, but her, her grief in her current circumstance. Grief is a weird thing. We all have to experience it at one point or another, and we all have to work through it. Hospital chaplains in particular have to become working experts of grief witnessing it, counseling through it, and even experiencing it themselves. On our next episode, part two of our conversation with Ibrahim, we continue talking about grief 
and also touch on nice Catholic ladies, laughing in the emergency room, and angels on earth. Until then, I'm Hussein, and this is Chicken Soup for the Muslim Room. This episode of Chicken Soup for the Muslim Roo was written and produced by myself, Hussein Khan, and edited by the wonderful Amir Javed. The beautiful artwork you see on TELUS as well as Instagram was made by the talented Rizwan Ali, the very patient Matt Waterworth and Jessica Gibson of the National Screen Institute mentored and supported me throughout the process of getting this podcast done. It would not be possible without them or the generous funding from TELUS Story Hive, who you'll hear from now. This program was produced with the support of TELUS.